The passage for today's sermon is found in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 13. Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. Well, recently I got around to watching the latest Avengers movie. So as a parent of three kids under five or five and under, I have to wait like at least a year to see some movies I'd like to see. But if you've seen Infinity War, you'll know, not too much spoilers here, so don't worry, but it's been a year, so. Um, you'll find that as you watch the, the movie, the, the villain, as the a, as a story unfolds, the villain, this terrible Thanos, has this plan to make the universe a better place to live. And his plan, really a plot, is that in order to improve the condition of life, he intends to acquire all six Infinity Stones, so he can wipe out half of life. If he does that, he believes the half that remain will live in peace and prosperity. So one article in the movie says this, Thanos believes that the only way to save the universe is to thin out the life in it, to eliminate conflict for resources that would otherwise lead to death and suffering. Thanos' plot to end death is to cause widespread death, murder. He's the quintessential bad guy, isn't he? But why is he bad? I mean, why is this sort of plan so repugnant to us? Well, why does this sort of ends justify the means argument seem so abhorrent? Why is murder wrong? Is it because... We've been conditioned by our environment to think it is? Is it because we're naturally self-preserving creatures? Why do we have this gut instinct to value human life? Well, church, we continue this morning in our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, written, uh, many believe, by the prophet Moses. He writes this book to recount the history of God delivering his people Israel 
from slavery in Egypt in about the 15th century B.C. So as, we, as we've considered this story, we've seen Israel delivered from Egypt, led into the wilderness on their way to the promised land of Canaan. And on the way, one of their stops is here at Mount Sinai. Here at Sinai, God meets with them. And he speaks directly to them, giving them his law, his Ten Commandments. And that's this law, these commandments are actually what we're in the middle of considering this week. So, so two weeks ago, we considered the command to honor our parents, the fifth commandment. Today, we come to the sixth commandment, which Ian has just read for us. You shall not murder. So to consider this commandment this morning as a church family, let's organize our study under three points, all right? First, the author of life. The author of life. Second, the value of life. The value of life. And then finally, life through death. Life through death. So first, the author of life. And as we kind of dig into the sixth commandment, remember, Christians, how we come to this law. We saw this last week, and we're going to flesh it out again this week so we remember. We come to these Ten Commandments in order to do three things. We come with a, a Trinitarian perspective. So God, Son, and Spirit. So first we come to see the character of God, God the Father. So remember, this God on Mount Sinai, wrapped in smoke and cloud, is our God in 2019. He hasn't changed. What he reveals about himself here in Exodus chapter 20 is still true today. So we come to see the character of God. Second, we come to rejoice in the obedience of Christ, the Son of God. So while we could never keep these commandments perfectly, even worse, while we really wanted nothing to do with these commandments at all, God sent his Son, Jesus, to live a perfect life for us, to take our punishment for us. Jesus saved us from the punishment of this law by keeping this law perfectly for us. That's the good news we celebrate each and every week here at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. So we see the character of God, we see the obedience of Christ, and finally we come to this law to understand better how to live the life we now have in Jesus Christ. So we are no longer under this law like Israel was. This was the part of the old covenant. We are now under a new covenant Jesus has inaugurated. But this covenant no longer, it, do, it doesn't no longer have any, any impact on us whatsoever, but it leads us, it, it guides us, it helps us live in the will of God. So we come to the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And so the first thing we should see is what this commandment teaches us about God. See, most cultures, most, I would say every culture, has some sort of understanding that taking another human life is wrong. But God, or, or Yahweh, his personal name he reveals to his people here in Exodus, seen in your English translations as LORD, all caps, Yahweh is not just giving his people this law because it's the right thing to do, because every culture assumes it's the right thing to do. 
He's giving them this law because it reflects his character. You shall not murder because of who God is. So who is God? Well, he is the creator of life. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So humans have tried and tried to replicate God's creative work and and make life on our own. So, uh, for example, back in the year 2010, uh, the scientist Craig Venter successfully made what was called a, quote, synthetic life form. And he did this by taking things like a a cell and and a catalyst to make this synthetic life form. But even in his ingenuity, and there is no doubt ingenuity in what he did, he still was, wasn't even close. It wasn't even in the same ballpark to doing what God did as our creator. The, the author and commentator Al Mohler reflected on that story back in 2010, and he said simply, this was not the creation of a life form ex nihilo. Ex nihilo is a a Latin phrase, meaning out of nothing. Venter had things to work with. But God, the, cru- the true creator, created everything out of nothing. He didn't have any ingredients. He merely spoke. And the power of his authoritative word brought life. Only God does that. Only God works with nothing to create everything. I mean, something had to be the first thing to exist, right? But even when you think back to that something, then how was that first thing brought into existence? Who brought it into existence? What force brought it into existence? The Bible says it was God. Because God has always existed. Only he truly gives life. God Our God is the author. He's the originator, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the the maker, the founder, the mastermind, the designer of all of life, all of existence. That's who he is. So remember earlier in Exodus last year, we saw Yahweh reveal himself to Moses. You remember that at the burning bush? And do you recall what he called himself when Moses asked? Exodus chapter 3, God said to Moses, I am who I am. A name that reveals the very essence and nature of God. God is that God is. In other words, he is self-existent. Nothing causes him. Nothing can end him. Existence exists because he exists. If he ceased to exist, existence would cease to exist. So the primary rule, the governing principle of the entire universe is the existence of God. He is the one through whom, by whom, in whom life is even possible. God is the ultimate author of life. It's his idea. He gets to give it. And he gets to take it away. God is the ultimate giver of life. And because of that, he is also the ultimate valuer of life. 
And so submitting to his rule, to the way he has made the universe to run, means valuing what he values. And so it's really no surprise, friends, that when Adam and Eve, that first man and first woman, rebel against God's rule and decide to set themselves up as kings of their own universe, human life immediately comes under attack. Genesis chapter 4. We find that Eve has given birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. And when Cain becomes angry with Abel, he rises up and murders him. Church, it doesn't take generations and generations for sin to sort of mature and germinate and grow into a higher form of evil, like murder. It takes just a few years. The two sons of Adam, the third and fourth living human beings, one is murdered and one is the murderer. Instantly, as sin enters the world, as we reject God's design and his plan and his value system, life is devalued. Life is taken. And sin is the cause. God is the author of life. And that leads us to think more about the value of life. So that's our second point, the value of life. So God has made life. He values life. That's who he is. That's what he's like. But what's so particularly special about the life of a human? Aubrey read for us earlier from the very first chapter of the Bible, where we saw God creating the universe from nothing, ex nihilo. He creates light, sky, Land, plants, the sun, the moon, the stars, animals. But then something unique happens. In Genesis 1, verse 26, which Aubrey read, we read, Then God said, let us make man. But then he adds something he hasn't said before. Do you remember what it is? He says, let us make man, what? In our image. After our likeness, and let man have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock. So God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. So in this grand work of creation, in this grand work of this master creator, He designs it so that unlike the plants, unlike the animals, unlike the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies, God has made man and woman in his own image. Something Christians say a lot. But what does it mean? I mean, does it mean we look like God? Kind of the way that a son images his father? Well, not physically. God is spirit right? He isn't human. So what does it mean to be made in his image? Well, it means we share in some ways in the very attributes of God. It means we do do look like God. We look like his character. It means we represent him on earth. So we see right there in Genesis 1 that God gives humans a task that only he exercises. This task of having dominion and care over his creation. 
being sort of vice kings or vice regents of his world. It's a godlike task. We are not God, but he has made us in his image to exercise in some way, somehow, his authority in order to bring him glory in his creation. So we live, we, we act, we govern, we think after God in godlike ways. For example, we are eternal. Our souls live forever. That's the image of God in us. We speak words and we communicate in language, written and verbal. That's the image of God in us. We have dominion over creation. That's the image of God, the ultimate king in us. Unlike the rest of his creation, we have this distinct responsibility to glorify God as his image bearers. And I think that's I know that's why there's such outrage and sadness over human death, over violations of human rights, over these acts of cruelty and murder against men and women. So you may remember a few years back the story of Harambe, the gorilla, who was killed at the Cincinnati Zoo in order to save the life of a young boy who had fallen into its cage and was within its grasp. And You may also remember kind of the uproar afterwards, this upheaval as people wondered as to the justice of killing a gorilla in order to save a boy. After all, the gorilla was imprisoned. In some ways, its rights had been harmed. It it had no choice. Here's what a writer named Dave Bry said in the the British, uh, The Guardian. He wrote, as much as I love animals, and I love them very much, the idea that the life of a cat or a dog or a lion or a gorilla is as important as the life of a human is a terrible one, a wrong one, an insulting one, because I'm a human. No other species on this planet could even take part in this discussion. I don't know if Bry's a believer in Christ or not. I assume he isn't. He makes a clear point. It may be a tragic situation at the Cincinnati Zoo, but the right thing was done. Humans are valuable in a way animals aren't. Humans are unique. Humans are different. And really the best explanation for why that is the case, why we all kind of understand that, is God's word. And what we've just read, human beings, you and me, are made in God's image. We are inherently valuable because God has made us to bear his likeness. Beloved church, there is application for us here, right here, right now. Each one of us is equally valuable before God. Yes, sin has distorted that image in us, but the image has not been completely erased. God values every single human being. Do you? Think about your heart for a moment. 
Are you ever tempted to devalue another human being? Perhaps you're tempted to devalue those who are of a different financial class than you, who aren't able to live like you live, who need support even to eat. You know that they're humans, but they're just not as worthy as you are. Perhaps you're tempted, as Brad prayed before, to value those of a different race than you are, speak a different language than you do. Perhaps you're tempted to devalue those of a different sex than you. Let's be honest, brothers and sisters. Here's here's another thing to think about that struck me this past week. Think, Think about the people you work with or rub shoulders with who are LGBT, living the gay lifestyle or transgender. So, yes, we know God's ways are right and good. We know that those sorts of lifestyles are contrary to God's design and harmful to those humans. But as we understand that, and as we do grieve the distortion of God's good creation and grieve the judgment that will come on people who distort his good creation, we must still never dehumanize or devalue those people. They image God, however poorly. We must never devalue fellow image bearers who are far from God because we were once far from God. That hadn't been for his electing sovereign grace. We would be hopeless. We must not consider others, no matter who they are, somehow inherently less worthy of God's love than we. But do we? I do. I was convicted this past week of certain kinds of people that I just kind of automatically think are less than I am. Do you? As a church, we must be careful to disagree and preach truth in love and compassion. And that love and compassion will come from recognizing the inherent value built into every individual made by God. Well, these these truths of God as the author of life, the one who has given human beings his image to give him glory, all of this kind of provides the backdrop for the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. That Hebrew word used for murder, so Exodus is written in the Hebrew language, uh, is one of many different words you could use for murder in the Hebrew language, but this one's always used in reference to the killing of a human being. Now, here's how the author T. Desmond Alexander says, says it. He says, it is a broad term, this word for murder. It's deliberately chosen because it covers a range of killings involving people, including murder, manslaughter, and accidental killings. He goes on to say the sixth commandment is perhaps best understood as stating that no human being may take a human life without divine approval. So, church, do you see the the point of what this commandment is driving at? Because God is the author of life, you shall not murder. 
murder is an explicit rejection of God as it destroys a bearer of the image of God. Murderers put themselves in the place of God as one who determines who lives and who dies. Something that alone is God's role. We saw that a month ago in December. Do you remember that with King Herod? Matthew chapter 2, Herod is so concerned that his kingdom, his sort of, sort of uh, role as king of the Jews will be threatened by somebody who's calling them the new king of the Jews, the, this boy named Jesus. And so he kills over probably over 20 young boys in the city of Bethlehem. The desire to be God for Herod leads him to actual murder. And as we said a month ago, we see those same implications in our society today as we kill the weak among us, the unborn infant, the infirm elderly person. Also, we can be, have some sort of semblance of control and governance of our existence. Also, that we can be God. Abortion, euthanasia, are outright rejections of both the character and the law of God. Sin leads to murder. And God is judge. So no one will ever get away with murder. So at this point, as an aside, perhaps your mind has been wandering a little bit and it's kind of drifting to all those immediate caveats you're thinking, right? So, so you're thinking, well, what about wartime? Well, what about capital punishment and the death penalty? Is, are those things ever permissible? We actually see in God's law coming up that people who commit murder are killed, right? And so we can talk about that more offline if you'd like, but I really don't think that that's what the Sixth Commandment's getting at. So you can go to Romans chapter 13 later this afternoon and re- refresh your mind on how God has, in certain ways, bestowed earthly governments with his authority to reward good and punish evil. And we can discuss how that should work itself out in our world. But this commandment's hitting on something broader. It's pointing to the people of Israel. It's pointing to the men, women, and children of Israel and saying, you shall not murder. Well, with that settled then, perhaps some of your minds are drifting somewhere else then. And you're thinking, all right, well, with that explanation, I think I'm pretty good to go here. I, I mean... Two weeks ago is rough because I don't always honor my parents, but this one's a breeze because, believe it or not, I've never actually murdered anybody, and I don't plan to. Next sermon, please. As Jim read earlier, not so fast. Jesus is the perfect interpreter of the law. And in his sermon in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus showed that the real core of the law of God isn't concerned only with our actions, our behaviors, our outward acts, but with our hearts. Jim read it for us earlier. Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Jesus refers back to the law of God right here in Exodus 20, and he says, we all know murder is wrong. We all know murder merits God's judgment. But you know what? The, the heart behind murder is anger. Anger, says Jesus, is murder of the heart. And the bad news is that we've all done it. Church, Jesus isn't letting us off easy with this commandment. He's showing us actually that we're all heart murderers. We've all broken this. We've all daydreamed of ways to get even with someone. We've all lashed out with angry words and in some words or another damned others around us, something only God can do. We're heart murderers, church. Anger is not a respectable sin. It's not a small deal. At its root, anger is wanting to be God and executing judgment on those around us. So dear Christian, hear Jesus' words. Your anger is not something to ignore, not something to write off as you were just too tired or you'd had a stressful day. Your anger deserves hell. That's what Jesus says. So what are we going to do? Final point, life through death. So we've seen God as the author of life. We've seen how he has created humans in his image for his glory. We've seen how we have failed in that. And now it's time to get to Jesus. A place we always need to get. Because while we failed to image God's glory, one man didn't fail. One man, only one man, was the perfect representation of God's character, the perfect image of God, and that was Jesus. Do you remember what the New Testament writers say about Jesus? Do you remember what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1? Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Do you remember what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1? Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus was all we should be. The perfect Adam, the, the perfect giver of glory to God, the perfect vice king over creation, the perfect human being, the perfect image bearer. Yet what happened to Jesus? Well, on the day that Jesus stood trial before Pontius Pilate, there was a murderer waiting to be crucified. But it wasn't him. Listen as I read a, a part of Mark 15. Mark, the disciple, writes, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Meaning Jesus. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? 
and they cried out, crucify him. Church, do you want to know what happens with murderers when Jesus comes? They're set free if they trust in him. In a way, church, we're all Barabbas. I love how one author puts it. He says, you really are just like Barabbas. You and I are sinners. We sit in a spiritual prison like Barabbas did. We sit bound helpless like Barabbas did, awaiting the day when we get the just punishment we deserve. But then Jesus goes off to the cross in our place and we're set free. He gets what we deserve. We get what he deserves. We are Barabbas. We're the murderers gone free as the one who never committed murder is crucified. Do you see the irony of sin? In our quest to become God and decide who lives and who doesn't, we killed the very Son of God. But even more than the irony of our sin, do you see the beauty of the gospel? In his own death, in his own murder at our hands, Jesus saved murderers. Jesus, who we read in Acts, is called the prince or the author of life. Remember our first point. Jesus is the author of life, and he came to lay down his life so we could live. The one who had every right to life died for us. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so grateful that you're here. But this is what this commandment should teach you. Your anger deserves God's judgment. And because your sin, your anger is is treason against the king of the universe, the very one who gave you life to begin with, your punishment is death. Your punishment is eternal death in hell. But when God had every right to punish you in that way, he sent his son and punished his son for anyone who would repent of their sin and turn in faith to him. Jesus took our sin. Jesus took our hell. Jesus took our anger. Jesus took our murder, our heart murder, all on himself so we could be saved. When you picture in your mind's eye the cross with the innocent Savior hung on it, you don't picture just physical torment, which he was under, but you picture the heinousness of your sin placed on his heaving shoulders. Won't you turn to him today, friend? If you have questions about how to have your sin put on your Savior and not remain on your account, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to people who have been leading music or prayer or scripture up here. We'd love to share with you not how we're better than you because we're like the church-going folk, but because we are just as every bit in need of grace as you are. And God gives grace freely. And church, Jesus didn't stay dead. 
He rose again to give us new eternal life. And in the victory that he has secured for us and the new life that he has now given to us, we have the ability now, remember that third application of the law, we have this third ability by his Holy Spirit to actually live out the principles of this law in our lives. How? As we close, two quick applications. First, repent of your anger. So perhaps this afternoon or this week sometime, spend time in your quiet times or whenever considering your anger. Just look at it head on. See how it's a rejection of God and his authority in your life. Meditate on how your, your anger is heart murder. It's ultimately even a desire to kill God himself and wrest control into your hands. And then see all that anger placed on Christ. Feel it fall from your shoulders. And rejoice in his work for you. And then share that with a brother or sister in the church. So that together we can grow and pray to be killing our anger by the power of the Holy Spirit. And living in the freedom Jesus has purchased for us. Repent of your anger. And second value one another. So this might be hypothetical for some of you, but even in this church, there might be people you don't like. There might be people you find it hard to appreciate, even to value. But God has loved them so much that he sent his son to die for them to take his anger, his wrath for them so we could be made God's friends, seated at his table. God loves them, so should we. So John the Apostle sort of continues to apply this law in 1 John chapter 3, and he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Let that sink in. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Pretty tough words. But then listen to the very next verse. By this we know, love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Church family, Jesus didn't take life, but gave life for us. So let's commit to keeping the, the shelf life of our anger and hatred towards another, one another very brief, very short. Let's take that anger off the shelf and deal with it. Commit to, to reconciling when we're wronged and repenting when we're the ones committing the wrong. Let's look to Jesus, to the one who bore God's wrath for us and seek to grow in valuing one another and killing our anger as we await his return. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we confess that in our anger, in our 
prejudice and our partiality, we can be tempted to devalue the image of God, your image, and those around us, even in this church. Lord, please help those of us who have been angry this past week or continue to hold anger over to this Sunday morning. Lord, to see it placed on the cross and by your Holy Spirit to see the value and worth of every human being in this room and across the world. Lord, we may not murder anybody in our lives, but we've all thought about it. Forgive us. Set us free. Help us to rejoice in Jesus who was murdered for us and to live humbly as a church as your image is restored in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.